welcome you guys. It's so great to be here today. Um, it's so weird that um, we have this thing in the sky that's like burning light down on us today. It's like this thing that I think people have referred to as the sun. And uh, we haven't seen it in a really long time. So I, for one, was really happy to get up today if for no other reason than that the sun was out. And so um, as Nick mentioned, uh, we've been in the book of Ruth. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be able to close it out for us today in chapter four. And I had the great joy of writing a Bible study uh, on this book uh, a number of years ago and then going around and teaching it. And so if you missed last week or the last couple of weeks, just the smallest recap here, you know, you had um, in in Bethlehem, in God's chosen land, you had this, this, this Israelite family, Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons, Malon and Chilion. And we know that there was a famine in the land, which is really interesting because Bethlehem means house of bread. So why would there be a famine in the house of bread? And it's very, very possible that um, since Ruth is attached to judges and happened in the, in the middle of judges, that this was something that God was using to draw his people back to himself. But instead of staying in Bethlehem and being drawn back to himself, uh, Elimelech decides to take his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, and they go to the land of Moab, which was a, not just a foreign land, but it was a dark pagan land. And where they worshiped false gods and where they did many deplorable things. And, and so God's presence did not rest there. Even though there was food there, that's not where God's presence was dwelling. And so they go to that land. And as you know, and I know as, as Pastor Nick has taken you through, um, not only does Elimelech pass away at the very top of chapter Ruth, but both of their sons pass away as, uh, as well, Malon and Chilion, living their two Moabitess wives, Orpah and Ruth. And I remember teaching uh, on this story and that first chapter is very difficult. It's really it's really tragic. And so I would I would teach um usually when I would go and travel and speak, I would teach on chapter 1 on Friday night and then on a Saturday I would I would cover uh chapters 2 through 4. And I remember bringing one of my best friends with me uh, for that series. We kind of went all over the country and um, her name's April, and, and on the very first uh, night that I, that I taught after I was done, as, or um, after the event was over, actually, I said, how, how did you think things were going? And she said, well, you know, I mean, I thought Saturday was really good, like once you got to, the, you know, Boaz and Ruth and some redemption, and, and she said, but Friday night is like a downer. I mean, Friday night is a serious downer. And she goes, Kelly, these women, they have driven long hours. They have... They have worked long weeks and you need to encourage them on Friday night. And Friday night is just like womp, womp, the whole thing. And, and I looked at her and I said, I did not write this story. Like, I cannot help it that three people die in the first five verses of the book. Like, this is not my story. And uh, so anyway, I'm so happy. Thank you, Pastor Nick, that I've got chapter four. Well, I really appreciate that you did this for me. This was a real blessing. So I get to start with chapter four. And as you know, we left off last week that Naomi and Ruth have um, gone to Bethlehem. Naomi is returning to her homeland. Ruth the Moabitess is entering the city gates for the very first time. She stumbles upon this wealthy single landowner's field named Boaz. Where's that guy? I don't know, but he existed back in the book of Ruth. 
And then when Ruth tells Naomi of the field in which she's working, she realizes, Naomi realizes that this man, Boaz, is not just a really good, wealthy, single, attractive landowner, but he actually happens to be a kinsman redeemer. And that's what we're going to talk about in chapter 4 today. He happens to be a kinsman redeemer. And so, and I'm really glad also that Nick covered last week too, because that's a tricky one. Naomi sends Ruth down to the threshing floor to lay at the feet of Boaz. And in those days, the threshing floor is often where prostitutes would come and offer their services. So again, thanks, Nick, for covering that. And so we left off where... Ruth is at the feet of Boaz, and she asks him essentially to redeem her, to marry her. And he says, listen, there is actually a kinsman redeemer who is closer than I am to you. There is someone who actually has first right of refusal. There's someone closer in line than I am. So I want you to go back to Naomi, and I want you just to wait. And that is where we left off last week. And so today, I want us to read the first four verses of Ruth chapter 4. So if you've got it in your Bibles, Ruth chapter 4, if you actually have like one of these kinds of Bibles and you got to flip, it's right before the book of Judges. And I know that that's easy for you all to find because I know that everybody was in their quiet time in Judges this morning. So Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about, or the kinsman redeemer he had spoken about, came by. And Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know, because there isn't any one other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the opportunity um, to bring your word this morning. I thank you. God, for this church and this gathering. And I'm well aware that in a group this size, Lord, there is a whole group of us here desperate for a true kinsman redeemer and not just a human one. But Lord, we need a, we need a savior, one who is both human and God. And I pray, Lord, today that you would meet us however we have come in today, and that you would do what only you can do for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Boaz, as soon as uh, Ruth has gone back, he is up the next morning, and he is going to go find this other kinsman redeemer. Okay, and I'm just going to tell you three things about a kinsman redeemer. We're not going to put them up on the screen until later, but just three quick things that you need to know about that time and kinsman redeemer is that if you were going to redeem property, you had to be near of kin. Okay, you had to be near of kin. So if I wanted to redeem Elimelech and Naomi's property, but I wasn't related to them, that deal's off. You had to be near of kin. That is why it is called a kinsman redeemer. 
You also had to be able to redeem the property. You had to be able to do it. So if I was near of kin, but I didn't have the resources to get this property and to take care of Naomi and to take care of her family legacy, then I'm out. And in just a moment or near the end, we'll talk about the third um, property of the kinsman redeemer. But this is what's happening here is that Boaz would like to redeem. However, there is a kinsman redeemer who is closer in connection, a closer relative than he is. And so he's got to go find that guy and see if he wants this whole thing. And so he goes and he finds him and he says, hey, so-and-so. That's actually like that. That's the Hebrew there. there we don't have a name for this guy. Boaz is like, hey, so-and-so, um, sit down here. And, and, and you elders sit down here and they're at the city gate. And today we, we have something very similar. We have the general store here for us. So you can kind of just picture that. And, and you can't see this, but there are stones here. So I kind of feel like I'm back in Bethlehem. This is pretty awesome. And so the city gate is where a lot of things would happen. And so he's got the elders, Boaz does, and he's got this so-and-so kinsman redeemer. And he says, hey, Naomi's property is up. And, and, uh, you know what? You're, you're the guy who can redeem it. And, um, you will then be responsible for carrying on our brother Elimelech's family name. This can be part of your legacy. And this so-and-so kinsman redeemer says, absolutely. I will redeem it. Yes. And if you've been following along with the story, all of our hearts should have sunk at that moment because we don't want so-and-so kinsman redeemer to get Ruth. We want Boaz to get Ruth because we are Westerners and we want this to be a movie and we already have our popcorn and we are like ready for Boaz to make his move. And now this guy has come out of nowhere and he goes, absolutely, I'm going to redeem this. But then look what, this is so awesome. Look what Boaz says. This is it, verse 5 and 6. Then Boaz said, oh, I forgot to tell you this tiny bit of fine print. On, that part's not in there. On the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess. The wife of the deceased man. To perpetuate the man's name on his property. The Redeemer replied, oh, yeah, I can't do that then. <laughs> I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. Do you see what Boaz just did? He, he laid out all the perks and the guy's like, oh yeah, definitely. I want that estate. I'm happy to carry on a limelech, that good Israelite family name. And then Boaz says, oh, I forgot to tell you. Okay, so there's this one little thing. There is this widow, and she, her name is Ruth, and she's, um, she's a Moabitess. And see, this is hard for us in our culture, but that would have been the worst possible thing that anybody could have ever said, is that you would get, as an Israelite, that you would have to inherit a Moabitess. This is somebody, not only is she a widow, but she's the lowest of the low, and she's from the darkest, most foreign faraway place and that's the last thing that this guy wants and in fact he says i he gives a very specific reason he goes i actually can't do that because i don't want to endanger my own future 
I don't want to endanger my own estate, my own legacy. This would be too much of a sacrifice for me. See, number one, I am the the closest in kin. And number two, I am able to redeem. But this is way too much of a sacrifice. And I love how Boaz set that up because it was just so like tricky. You know, he got him to agree. And then when he threw Ruth in, he's like, oh, no, I'm out. And and I don't know. Did have any of you guys watched the Anne of Green Gables movies? Am I getting old? OK, there's like four of you. OK, I'm get, I'm starting to date myself. But this this was so great. OK, there's a few people in the back that are like really giving this to me. So um, if you're young and you haven't seen it, you need to go back and you look, need to look at Anne of Green Gables. But Anne, I mean, she grew up. It's like an older, way older show, period piece. And. And, and the whole movie is about her getting with this guy, Gilbert. And he's so just good. And she just doesn't, she doesn't get it. She doesn't like him. She's not drawn to him in that way. And, um, cause he's just so pure and he's so good and he's so nice. And one day she's walking in the fields with her, um, her adopted mother. And Marilla says, no, I just don't understand. Why won't you give Gilbert a chance? I mean, he's such an incredible, amazing guy. And Anne um, said, I, I just, I wish that, I, I just wish he was a little more like wicked. And Marilla goes, really? You want to marry someone wicked? And this is what she said. She goes, I wouldn't want to marry anybody who was wicked, but I think I'd like it if he could be wicked and wouldn't. And see, I, this is Boaz. This whole moment, like he's not wicked, but he could be. He wanted to be. And I'm very drawn to him in this moment. Um, I have to say, Boaz is not wicked, but he sure could be. Okay, so this, so here in this moment, he gets all this worked out. And, you know, we never, ever, ever hear from the so-and-so kinsman redeemer again. And I don't think it's an accident that his name is not recorded And so this is number one for us today. If our lives revolve around protecting our prizes and possessions, we'll miss the joy and blessing of a meaningful and eternal legacy in Christ. Guys, if if everything is about protecting our estate and our inheritance and our future, our prizes and our possessions, if we live our lives that way, we're going to completely miss out on the legacy of following Jesus Christ and the blessing and the joy of that. And that's exactly what happens to this so-and-so kinsman redeemer. Okay, let's, let's, uh, oh, oh, let me just tell you, we won't read this part. After, um, after the kinsman redeemer passes and Boaz sweeps in, they, they do this really cool thing in that day. They exchange, they don't, they don't sign a document. Um, you know, they don't, they don't transfer money. They, they exchange sandals. Okay, so that's that's there, and I just really didn't know what to make of that, so we're just skipping it. But when they exchange sandals, and that, when you exchange a sandal back in that day, it is a done deal, okay? That thing is finalized, okay? So they, they did that, they exchanged sandals, and then let's continue reading verse 9. So Boaz and it says to the elders and all the people at the town gate, You are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property 
so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this woman. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. And we'll pause that there for just a moment. Uh, so this is, this is incredible because Boaz is standing there. Remember that we're in Bethlehem. We're in God's chosen place. We are in right in the smack middle of, of the house of Israel. And Boaz, this Israelite, this well-known landowner stands up and in front of all the policymakers and all of the religious leaders and all of the people that are surrounded. And he says, today, I take Ruth the Moabitess as my wife. Because we cannot, in our culture, hardly get our minds around the beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that this is. The Moabitess and the Moabites were despised. And they were the outcasts. And not only does Boaz take her, but he proclaims her name in front of everyone. And he doesn't just say, I'm taking Ruth to be my wife. He says, I am taking Ruth the Moabitess. Let there be no mistake that there is no shame today. That there, that I, there is no condemnation here that this woman and where she is from and everything about her, I am proud to tell you that today I am taking her to be my wife. And then you have all these people standing around and they go, may she be like Rachel and Leah. And again, that may not mean a whole lot to us, but if you have read about Rachel and Leah, you will know that those two women are the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So here is a woman, Ruth the Moabitess, that at one point she's in Moab, she is heartbroken, she has lost her husband, and she decides to stick with Naomi, a, a woman who has renamed herself Bitter. I mean, that's fun, right? You want to go with that lady who her name meant lovely and she renamed herself Bitter? Like, that's not who I want to, you know, grab coattails of. And that's who Ruth goes back to Bethlehem with. And she says, your God's going to be my God and your people are going to be my people. And she makes this radical shift. And she's at the lowest of the low. In fact, we know that when she got to Boaz uh, uh, field, that she was actually, she had less status than a servant girl. You could not get any lower than Ruth was. And you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 2 of verse 12, when Boaz and Ruth are having dialogue, at one point he says, Ruth, may you take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. May you, Ruth, the Moabitess, the outcast, the bereft, the broken, the shamed, the lowly, may you take refuge 
under our great God, under the wings of the God of Israel. This is a picture of the gospel right here. And now what has gone beyond Ruth's wildest dreams, now the people in the city gate are saying, may you be like the rock stars of Israel. May you be like Rachel and Leah. This is absolutely staggering. And here's number two for us today. There is nothing about our race, culture, heritage, or past that Christ is unwilling to redeem. Um, I would even throw anything, any sin, anything, anything that we have done, anything that has been done to us, anything. There's nothing. There's nothing that you came in with today. Nothing in your past, nothing in your present that Christ is unwilling or unable to redeem. Unwilling to stand at the city gates and say, I take him. I take her into my family. This is profound, what is happening. Now, we read verse 13, and I always say that I, um, I know that the author of Ruth is a man um, because he shoves a marriage and a pregnancy and a wedding, really, all into one verse. And this is where we have been waiting. I mean, we've been waiting the entire story for this moment. And he's like, they get married, they have a wedding, they have a kid. They, and you're like, wait, this, this is everything that we've been waiting for. And, and you go, well, maybe he just wasn't big on detail. And I'm like, no, because you know what? We know exactly how many grams of weight and barley that people carried around in this story. I mean, he had it down to the detail of how much stuff. But then you get to verse 13 and it all just, it goes so fast. And I'm, I'm like, I wish that um, whoever wrote this book, I wish that maybe he could have given us just a little bit more. But he just shoves all of this into this, into this one little verse. And, and then let's see right here after he does the, the birth, the wedding, the whole thing, or the wedding and the birth, the whole storyline shifts from Ruth and Boaz to Naomi. Let's look at verse 14 through 17. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel, and he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny or his foster mother. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. Okay, so this is where the narrator loses me just a tiny bit because it's all about Ruth, it's all about Boaz, it's all about their story, it's completely amazing. And then as soon as they have this child... All the women surrounding Naomi say, God has given Naomi a son. God has given Naomi a son. 
And then the rest of the story is about how God has redeemed Naomi and given Naomi this child and that Naomi gets to care for this son. And, and I, I've gone back and forth because I'm, I'm like, Lord, I, I'm confused about this because I, I feel like Boaz maybe should deserve some of the spotlight and maybe Ruth should deserve some of the spotlight. And I feel like the bitter mother-in-law should not get to come sweeping in at the last second and hog the spotlight and the child. You know, what, what is going on here? And this is the part that I really want to unpack for us today because this is um, what has ministered to me so much over the years. First of all, the women say, blessed be the Lord, Yahweh. The Lord is probably in all caps in your Bibles, in your Bibles there. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel. Naomi, who has not left you without. That's a double negative there and may seem like not a big deal but in the hebrew that's very rare usage and it's a double negative in the hebrew they don't say the lord has given you a kinsman redeemer they say naomi look what's happened the lord has not left you without he has not done the thing that you were so afraid that he had done to you see you thought all the way back in chapter one and in chapter two, you thought that God's hand had gone out against you. You thought that the Lord was against you, that he was making your life bitter. You thought that God had taken away redemption from you. You had made all of these assumptions, but we are here to tell you today, as you hold this baby Obed in your arms, we are here to tell you that the Lord has not left you without it isn't that our fear, isn't that our fear so many times where we are at a point in our life and maybe there has been a loss or there has been a tragedy or there has been a difficulty or maybe it's been part of our own wandering and we think the Lord, he has left me empty. He's left me without. And as she holds Obed in her arms, the women say, oh, Naomi, no, you got it wrong. He did not leave you without. He has given you this incredible fullness. And we actually see here that Boaz is not the kinsman redeemer for Naomi. The kinsman redeemer for Naomi will be this child, Obed. And it's the only time in scripture that a child is referenced as a kinsman redeemer. And then for some reason, and we're not totally sure why, Naomi is the one who gets to sort of raise this child or be a foster mother to this child. And this child will renew her life. And you guys, you guys know this. You know if you've ever had children or if you have grandchildren or if you have nieces and nephews and just the joy that they bring to your life. I remember, um, my, my sister Katie, she, uh, because I'm, I'm single and I don't have any children, my sister Katie was the first to have children, um, in our, in our family and she was the first one to make me an aunt. And you know, life is just going along and going along and then all of a sudden, you know, she calls me and she says, I, we're, I'm about to give birth and I get on a plane and I get up to DC and I come busting into that hospital room. And my sister married, um, an, a New Jersey Italian. Okay. And she's got blonde hair, blue eyes, and he's dark, very Italian looking. And this baby comes out. And I mean, she is as Italian looking as it can possibly be this child. And I am so excited. I'm holding this little thing. And I mean, my heart is exploding and she looks like she just got off like the boat you know, 200 years ago or whatever. And 
And I, I, and I'm, I'm like, my heart just loved her so much. And I was holding little Marin and I said to Katie, I said, Katie, I love this child so much, but you do realize that Brad's Italian genes are going to just crush all of the mentor genes. And, and none of these children are going to look like you. And more importantly, none are going to look like me. And so I don't know what we're going to do about this, but, and, but I, I, we just, we got so, Marin just brought us so much joy. And about two years later, I get another phone call and it's time for Emmett to be born. And I fly up to DC and I go busting into that hospital room, same way I did for Marin. And there is this child who is almost albino (laughs) with bright orange hair. And to the point where the doctors are looking at my brother-in-law and my sister like, okay, how did this, we're not sure how this happened, but, uh, but the, the renewal of life, you know, that the kids bring and that our nieces and nephews and our children and our grandchildren bring. And that's what's happening because Naomi had given up. She had renamed herself bitter. Life was over. Her legacy, her, everything was about legacy in that day. Everything. Your meaning in life. And her legacy was dead because Elimelech was dead and her sons were dead and life was over. There was no hope left except for God who did not leave her without and who renewed her. But here is where it gets so profound. The women, these, these wise women that come around Naomi, and you know who these women are, by the way. These are church ladies. These are church, these are Hebrew Israelite church ladies. These are the ladies that like a baby is born and they come with the chicken casserole and they come with the, the, the high fat desserts and then they start just speaking prophetic words over you. That, this, that's what this is exactly what this is happening here. This is awesome. And they say in verse 15, he's, this little boy, Obed, is going to renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you, Ruth who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Okay. Seven, the perfect, whole, complete number in Hebrew culture. You can't get any more perfect than the number seven in that time. And in that day, it was the sons who would carry on the family name. It was the sons who would carry on the legacy. So to have seven sons would have been the picture of perfection. You could not get any more of the American dream, except for it would be the Hebrew dream, than the seven sons. And these women say, Ruth, do you get it? Do you get it? They say to Naomi, Naomi, do you get it? Ruth, who is worth more to you than seven sons, that's, that's who you got. And you can't help but go back. And I do want, if you've got your Bibles, I do want you to turn back to chapter 1, verse 21. This is as Naomi is returning to Bethlehem. She has just renamed herself bitter. She has lost her husband. She has lost her two sons. She has lost her estate. She has lost her legacy. And she says, I went away full, but the Lord, Yahweh, has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? I went away from Bethlehem full and God Almighty has brought me back empty. But who was standing right next to her? But Ruth, worth more 
to her than seven sons. But Naomi could not see it. She had declared, God, he's cursed me. He's, I came out of there full, but I'm walking back dead empty. And all she has by her side is this Moabitess roof. And she goes, I've got nothing. And she had not fully factored in what God would be able to do with someone like Ruth. She thought she was empty, but right there, she had someone who would prove to be more to her than seven sons, someone who would love her. And this is number three. What looks like debilitating emptiness might be the very thing God uses to bring you all the fullness of himself. I don't know what impossible situation you have come in with today. I don't know what brokenness, what emptiness. But I believe that that's the very thing. When you serve Yahweh, when you serve the one true God, I believe that that will be the very thing that will bring you the fullness of himself. The very thing that you thought was a curse may actually be a blessing beyond measure. Um, The women gather around and they say, a son has been born to Naomi. (laughs) And that's where I go back and I'm like, now, Lord, I just feel like Naomi's not that deserving. You know, um, because I am why I feel like I can judge this story or why I am so self-righteous in my judgment of her. But I look back at chapter one and chapter two and I think, Lord, I mean, she like cursed you and she didn't really honor you and she was bitter and she was angry. And I feel like Boaz should have a son. I feel like Ruth should have a son. I feel like the spotlight should land on the two of them at the end of the story and that they should kind of ride off into the sunset. And maybe Naomi gets just a little bit blessed because she's done some pretty good things and she hung in there and she has had a hard life and maybe we let her in just a little bit. But do we need to end with Naomi has a son and then go into this legacy? Like, is that really how we, is that how this should end? And I remember having the specific thought. I thought, because Lord, I, I feel like Boaz is kind of the hero of this story. I think that Ruth is really the hero of this story. And it was right then that the Holy Spirit said, oh no, Kelly, see, you've missed it. Ruth isn't the hero. Boaz isn't the hero. Naomi's not the hero. I am the hero of this story. Yahweh is the hero of this story. And and. And, and God, it is God who has blessed the deserving and the undeserving. It is God that blessed a woman who was broken down and was bitter and was hurting. And yet she was the one that God just crowned her. And when the women surrounded her and said, the Lord hasn't left you without. And, 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 and Ruth gets pulled into the story. We see that God is the hero of the story because look at this genealogy that comes after Obed. He was the father of Jesse. Oh, he's the father of King David. And then it goes all the way. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Amminadab, and Amminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And if you 
have ever read the genealogy, genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, you will find that exact genealogy stuck in the middle of Matthew chapter 1. And what genealogy is that? But none other than the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Yahweh is the hero of this story. Yahweh takes a broken woman named Ruth. He takes a godly, sacrificial man named Boaz. He takes a broken, hurting, bereft woman like Naomi. And he redeems a story that was perfectly unredeemable. And he gives each and every one of them a place in the line of Jesus Christ. I started today explaining that there are three offices of the kinsman redeemer. I gave you two. And I want to close by showing us why Jesus is the hero of this story and how Jesus fulfills the role of kinsman redeemer. We see, first of all, that Jesus was near of kin to us. And you say, well, how was Jesus near of kin? How did Jesus fulfill this? Well, let's look up on the screen here. I'm not going to turn there. I'm going to read it along with you guys. But in Hebrews, um, it says, Hebrews 2.14, it says, Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. We'll continue. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Let's keep going. For this reason, he had, this is it. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Did you see that Jesus Christ had to be made fully like us in every way so that he could be what? Near of kin. Near of kin. We also see that Christ had to be able. That was number two. He had to be able to redeem. And as I was praying over this this morning and praying for us, I'm realizing that once again, and just fresh, that there's nobody able to redeem us. We keep looking in this life and on this earth for someone and something to redeem us. And there's no one who is able to do that except for Jesus Christ. He is able to redeem. And look at Hebrews 7, verses 23 through 25. Now, there have been many of those priests. These are fleshly priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Here we go. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He is able. Boaz was near of kin. Boaz was able. The nameless kinsman redeemer was near of kin, and he was able. But here's the third office, and this is what sets Boaz apart, and this is what sets Jesus Christ apart, is the third office of a kinsman redeemer is that you had to be willing to redeem. Do you remember how we started today? Boaz says to the kinsman redeemer, the, the so-and-so kinsman redeemer, hey, so there's this property, Naomi Elimelech, 
this could be really good for you. And that guy who we don't have a name for, he goes, yeah, give me that thing. I'm ready to redeem that thing. And then he goes, oh, by the way, I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you that there's this lady named Ruth and she's like a Moabitess and she's a widow and she's lowly and it kind of might ruin everything for you. How do you feel about the deal now? And what does he say? I can't. I'm out. That's going to ruin my estate. I am unwilling. Yes, I'm near of kin. Yes, I'm able. But I am unwilling. And then we look at Jesus many, many, many years later. And he's at the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, um, Anna, would you just, yeah, go straight, for, um, go straight to um, Matthew. We'll just go straight to Matthew. He went away in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he goes to the cross and he prays, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Jesus in that moment says, Lord, this is, I can't imagine what going to the cross will do. Boy, will this ever endanger my estate. Boy, will this ever, boy, will this ever be a sacrifice. And he says, but not what I want. I'm willing to do what you want. I'm willing to go to the cross to save a whole world of Ruth the Moabitesses. I'm willing to endanger my estate. I'm willing to make that sacrifice. Jesus was the only one near of kin. He was the only one able, and he was, praise God, the only one willing to redeem us. Today, we have the opportunity, and Nick's going to set this up, but we have the opportunity to go to communion today. And, and maybe you've taken communion many, many times, but maybe you've never taken it with Jesus as your kinsman redeemer in mind. We think of him as Savior, think of him as Lord, but maybe today we go and we eat the bread and we take the cup and we say, thank you for being willing. Thank you for being willing to save me. That's the good news of the gospel. If you don't know that, if you are caught in your shame and in your past and in, in, in sin and things that you just, you don't know how you're going to bring it to the Lord, I just want to remind you that there's nothing that he's unwilling or unable to redeem. That's why he came and became near of kin to us and became flesh for us so that he could redeem you no matter what is in your past, no matter what is in your present. And he did it through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I thank you that in a moment we're going to have the opportunity to come to the table. Um, I'm so thankful that you were willing to save me because it cost you your life. It cost you everything. And I'm so thankful that you were willing to save everybody who's here in this room. And I pray that today, if we are receiving it for the very first time, that we would do so, that we'd call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be our kinsman redeemer. And that we would pass from death unto life. And if we've already done that, Lord, I pray that we would come and we would take communion in a new way. And thank you for being our Boaz. In Jesus' name, amen.